Our text today comes from Matthew chapter 7 as we continue our study in the Sermon on the Mount and in uh, the Gospel of Matthew. Hear now the words of your Savior. Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye? Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will clearly see to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and we ask you that your spirit would grant us clarity of thought, that we'd be able to see and hear the truth today, that you would deliver us from distracting thoughts, that you would deliver us from every error, loosen my tongue, so that I might articulate these things clearly today. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Have you ever noticed how often you are invited to share your opinion, how many times a day you are asked to leave a review. If you buy a hamburger at a fast food restaurant, the worker will circle a code on the receipt and say, call this number, go to this website, go take a survey, tell us what you think, and you'll get a free dessert. Retail stores and all kinds of service providers, if you make the mistake of giving them your email address or your, or your phone number, they will bombard you with text messages and emails asking, how did we do? Tell us about your experience. Take a short survey. Give us five stars. Give us a thumbs up. When you stream a movie or listen to a song, you're invited to rate it. Thumbs up, thumbs down. If you ever read a book on Kindle, you get to the last page. As soon as you get to the last page, a window pops up and asks you immediately to rate the book. Uh, they want you to review it right away. What did you think? Did you like it? How many stars? I haven't had time to digest or reflect or absorb. And you want stars? I can't, I can't give you anything. Our, our smartphones and our media apps, our social media apps, are these insecure attention sponges like Comment, share, follow, subscribe, love me, love me, love me. Please tell me you love me. Why don't you love me? Tell me you love me. This constant solicitation of our criticism fools us into thinking that our opinions are necessary, that they're valid, and that they're meaningful. We're perpetually invited to heave up whatever is in our head, whatever we're feeling at the moment, and spill it all out unfiltered. And so this gives us an inflated sense of the quality of our own taste and the clarity of our discernment, as if we really are these gifted music critics or gifted food critics or, or book critics. Whether we have any knowledge or skill at all in those areas, we offer our opinion. And this all taps in our tendency to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, to be wise in our own eyes, to establish ourselves as fault finders, complainers, authorities on everything. You, you start to gain the sense that you're not really doing your job unless you find fault with something. If you, if you don't find something wrong, you aren't paying attention because pure basic gratitude is far too remedial. Only simpletons enjoy things without critique, we might think. So, so to demonstrate how much you know and to demonstrate how refined and how sophisticated your palate is, you must find something wrong. Not only find something wrong, but announce it. Let everybody know that you found something wrong. 
And the result is, eventually, nothing is ever good enough for you. No one is ever good enough. Nothing is satisfactory to meet your very high standards of quality. Throughout the Gospels, this hypercritical attitude that was eager to point out the flaws in others, that was very short on humility, that was prevalent among the Pharisees. In fact, that's what we know them for. We know them for this attitude. And in the Sermon on the Mount, as Jesus calls his people, his new Israel, to come out from among them, to differentiate themselves from the scribes and Pharisees by truly fulfilling his father's law, not by giving lip service to his father's law and looking for loopholes on how to disobey it as the Pharisees were doing, but to truly obey and to truly fulfill his father's law, he calls his people to leave that wicked, hypercritical spirit behind. The kingdom that Jesus is building is going to be known for its humility, for its grace, for, for taking all sins seriously, starting with the sins of the members of that kingdom. The sins of the citizens of that kingdom are of utmost priority and importance. And we're going to do this by living according to God's standards, not according to men's standards, and not judging men according to men's standards. But even as Jesus delivers this very clear, direct teaching on this subject, this little verse in the Sermon on the Mount is perhaps the most quoted, I'm sorry, most misquoted, mishandled, misappropriated, misunderstood text in the whole Bible. It, it may be the most familiar verse to those who have never actually read the Bible. Those who don't believe in the creation account, they don't believe in the Red Sea crossing, they don't believe in the flood, they believe this. They believe these two words, not even the whole verse, just the first two words, judge not, and they're eager to quote it. What is Jesus saying, and what is he not saying when he commands, judge not, that you be not judged? Well, the Russian author Leo Tolstoy had a uh, take on this. He said, well, what that means is that Jesus totally forbids the human institution of any law court, that what Jesus sets about to abolish is the judicial branch of government. Now, of course, that doesn't make any sense because if you read just two more verses, what Jesus is addressing here are, are interpersonal relationships and our responsibilities to each other. Now, not only that, but in many places, the scriptures teach us that the role of the state is to judge. God grants human authority to deliver and pronounce righteous judgments on evildoers and to protect the innocent. That's the very reason God established the state, to make judgments. And God gives to all human authority the delegated responsibility of judging between good and evil. To the church, he gives authority to judge between false shepherds and true shepherds. Uh, and, and, and to judge between those who are uh, living like the devil and those who are living uh, like Christians. We're to make those judgments. And the Lord Jesus gives us that authority and requires us to make those judgments. Parents are required to correct the sins of their children and to teach their children self-government, to avoid evil, to embrace the good. And, and so to say that what Jesus is doing here is abolishing all human judgment or the role or, or the authority of the judge is just not 
um, in, in keeping with the rest of Scripture. It's not consistent with anything else Jesus or the Scriptures say. The entire fabric of society would quickly unravel if there were no judicial authority anywhere. We must have righteous judgment. So Jesus is not forbidding us from acting as a judge in any official capacity, nor is Jesus saying that we must all individually suspend our critical thinking abilities, that we should turn a blind eye to sin, that we must pretend not to notice error, that we must avoid all criticism altogether, that we must refuse to discern between truth and lies, good and evil. If Jesus is saying that you can't ever judge anything ever, that would also prevent us from calling something good, because even to call something good is making a judgment. Judgments aren't always negative. But of course, Jesus is not saying that we should never make a judgment at all, ever. In fact, he commands us to make judgments so long as they are righteous judgments, so long as they are just judgments. In John chapter 7, Jesus says, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. You must make right judgments. You must judge justly. In this very same chapter, Matthew 7, the Lord Jesus says, beware false prophets. Well, how am I supposed to know what a false prophet is if I can't judge a false prophet? In just a few verses, Jesus is going to say, don't give what is holy to dogs or don't cast your pearls before swine. Well, I have to know who are the dogs and I have to know who are the swine. Jesus is not saying suspend all critical thinking. We are in great danger if we do that. So what is Jesus correcting? Well, he's uh, correcting an overinflated sense of self-righteousness that blinds us to our own sins, that actually keeps us from dealing with our own sins, and instead makes us believe that we have this impeccable judgment, that we have this incredible clarity when it comes to everybody else's sins. We get the full instruction if we read the full statement, not just the first two words, but keep reading. Judge not, okay, why not? Why should we not judge? And what kind of judgment are you talking about? Judge not that you be not judged, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So the Lord Jesus is not prohibiting calling evil, evil. He's warning against hypocritical judgment. He's warning against a hypercritical view of everyone around you, what I'm going to refer to as judgmentalism throughout the rest of our, our time today. That's what he is uh, warning against and prohibiting, exercising judgment against others for the very thing that we are guilty of. And Jesus says his father in heaven does not overlook this. God will judge us by the same standard that we use to judge others. Remember earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, you're going to be forgiven the same way you forgive others. And, and this is what he says in uh, chapter 6, verse 14. You remember this. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. Are you the kind of person who, when someone asks for forgiveness, you kind of cross your arms and you look at them with scorn and say, I don't know, I have to think about it. I don't know. I, I might never be able to forgive you. Well, get ready, because that's how God is going to treat you. The people of his kingdom are people who forgive, who have experienced his forgiveness and lavish it 
on others. Well, Jesus has already said that. And now here he says, you're going to be judged the way you judge. Jesus might be building off Psalm 18, where David praises Yahweh using these words, with the merciful, you will show yourself merciful. With a blameless man, you will show yourself blameless. With the pure, you will show yourself pure. And with the devious, you will show yourself shrewd. For you will save the humble people, but will bring down haughty looks. And what David is saying there in Psalm 18 is that the Lord often makes us take our own medicine. That when it comes to judgment, uh, the question that Jesus raises here is, what are you going to be? Are you going to be a merciless, hair-splitting, carping, picky judge with the people that God has put in your life? Are you going to live as someone who is never pleased, never satisfied? Do you judge others' behavior by a stricter standard than you do your own? Do you pile up accusations against the people around you while excusing yourself? Does it delight you to find fault, to seek out others' failures, and to publicize them and to put the worst possible light on the motives of other people and to be impatient with their mistakes. If that's who you are, if that's how you want to be, Jesus says, I want you to understand that that's how God treats you. That's how God will treat the, the judgmental person, the hypercritical person. How would you fare if God were to judge you by the same standard you use for others? Well, I know that we'd be a a crater. We'd be a pile of ash if God were to treat us the way that we treat others at times. So Jesus follows this up with this over-the-top image of a guy taking tweezers to surgically pick out a grain of sand from his brother's eye while he has a four-by-four four fence post sticking out of his own eye. I've mentioned many times in the Sermon on the Mount that the things that Jesus said had to have caused the people to roll in the aisles as he was talking about these things. The multitudes, as they listened to him, he said several things that given the context and the audience, they, laughter had to ripple throughout the whole congregation. And here again, he's being deliberately over the top. He, he's giving a deliberately ridiculous uh, uh, illustration of what he's talking about. Who, who has a plank in their eye? Who has a post in their eye? You know how you're working out in the yard, you're mowing grass, whatever, and then all of a sudden you got a, you got a, a fence post sticking out of your eye. That's happened to you, right? It's a, it's a ridiculous image, and yet Jesus uses this to underscore the problem of how we treat others in, in our hypercritical spirit. He says in verse 3, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Jesus does not say, ignore your brother's sins. Jesus does not say, ignore error. Nowhere does Jesus ever teach a tolerance for sin. Nowhere does ever Jesus say, go along to get along, leave things alone, take it easy, live and let live. Jesus doesn't say little specks don't matter because they're only specks. He doesn't say that either. Jesus never tells us to ignore sin, big or small. 
What he has been doing throughout this sermon and what he does here is to teach us how to respond in a way that brings life and redemption and the gospel into each situation so that, as we've read before, when an enemy slaps you or takes your coat or imposes on you to go a mile, Jesus doesn't say ignore it. He doesn't say act like it's not happening, but to act in a way that short circuits the injustice and the evil. Resist evil, but not by evil means. Resist evil by overcoming evil with good. In a surprising and disarming way, we turn the other cheek. We give them the shirt off our back. We go the second mile. And here again, uh, the same principle is applied. What if your brother has a speck that must be corrected, that must be removed? Well, what's the first step? Where do you start? You remove the log from your own eye. You repent of your sin. You repent of your blindness. You make the proper corrections. Confess your sins. Turn from them. Clear your own eyes so that you can go back to your brother to help him. And this actually makes us more effective at helping our brothers. Dealing with our own sins first puts us in a position of humility and sympathy. We become so conscious of our own sins that we uh, identify uh, sin in another person and it doesn't provoke condemnation in us, it provokes compassion. We really want to help because we have experienced the transforming grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, his forgiveness. We've experienced that in our lives now because we can see better. We want to uh, uh, give thanks to God for ridding us of this post, of this beam, this log, by helping others have the same pleasure so that they can see the way that we see. We want them to be free and clear as well. That's the spirit commanded by Jesus. That's the spirit that, that he requires us to take to these scenarios, that we humbly assist each other in faithfulness while acknowledging our own weaknesses. It's so much different, though, from that pharisaical moral climate where everyone, and you've probably been in environments like this before, where everyone is constantly scrutinizing each other to make sure that everyone else is keeping the standard up. Everyone else is towing the line, and, and you're quick to condemn someone else when they're not. It's really a place of fear and a place of suspicion and not a place of real freedom or rest or joy. You hear people blame Christians often for creating this kind of environment, but, um, and, and we ought to acknowledge it and correct it and repent of it where we are guilty, but this judgmental atmosphere is present wherever people have not experienced or acknowledged or understood the forgiveness offered through the Lord Jesus Christ. And wherever we establish alternative law codes that are inconsistent with God's gracious laws. When we make laws, our laws are burdensome, our laws are onerous, our laws are tyrannical, our judgment is capricious. It's so unlike the law of liberty, so unlike the law of Christ. And so the most intolerable, insufferable people uh, to be around are the people who've developed these inferior standards of righteousness and hold everybody else to them. The rules around what you can say and what you can't say. You're judged harshly on whether you put the aluminum can in the brown bin or the green bin. 
uh, whether you give lip service to whatever the cause of the day is. These people can be brutal and just as smug and self-righteous <laughs> as any Pharisee because it's easy for them to follow their little L law. It makes you feel good to put the can in the right bin, to wear the pin, to salute the current thing, uh, to not resist the progressive crowd and whatever they're saying today is the most important thing uh, to be outraged over. That's what makes you a good person. It makes you a good person to do these things. Well, that's a false gospel. It's an, it's an empty righteousness that costs nothing. And it doesn't even begin to strike at man's deepest need, which is to be forgiven for real sin against a holy God. Doing the current thing doesn't make you righteous. And neither does laughing at the current thing. That doesn't make you righteous either. Uh, if you point out the silliness, yes, but that doesn't make you make you righteous. Yes, it's silly. So we must even avoid a hint of this, of, of this smug, self-righteous, pharisaical spirit that locates our righteousness anywhere outside of the Lord Jesus Christ and his obedience. Any system that locates your righteousness in gestures and things that you've done to make yourself feel better is a false gospel. Any system which creates a lower always more oppressive, always more onerous law that establishes your righteousness apart from the finished work of Christ, that is a false gospel. So we want to be rid of all of this. We want to be rid of this spirit of judgmentalism that Jesus corrects, this hypercritical spirit for several reasons. Let me just give you about four reasons that this is so destructive. Number one, this kind of judgmentalism that Jesus corrects here makes us poor judges. The spirit of hypercriticism doesn't make us better at discernment. It makes us worse because we're practicing the very kind of judgment that God prohibits, which is the judgment that rushes to fix other people's problems before, uh, before addressing our own. We're, when we do that, we're typically exercising the kind of judgment that is based on appearances. Judgment that ignores careful thought, that ignores and resists reflection or any investigation into the truth. If you're humbly dealing with your brother's spec, you would approach it this way. Hey, I've just got some questions. I heard you say this and I I just want to know what you meant by that, or I saw you do this, and I really, need to, I really need to understand what you were doing there, rather than just simply assuming motives or ascribing motives to actions and words. This kind of judgment that Jesus corrects is really, really sloppy. It, it doesn't, it's not interested in the truth. It goes off perception. It goes off appearances. There's no investigation. It's judgment that is rash and reactionary. And that kind of judgment is under God's judgment itself. It's not, it's not going to produce any good fruit. And if we keep practicing that poor judgment, you think, well, it's, it's helping me be a better critical thinker. No, it's not. You're actually getting worse. It, 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 you're getting really skilled at making bad judgment calls. And you're just getting better and better at making bad judgments. It's like a sloppy habit learned in a tennis serve or in a golf swing. Or in, or in learning an instrument. You just keep doing it the wrong way and you don't get better. You're practicing, you're training yourself in bad habits. And the only way to correct it 
is to strip it all down, unlearn the bad habits, tear it down, and start over. Get the beam out of your own eye that is, is obstructing your own judgment. Confess the sin of exercising poor judgment. So first of all, this kind of judgment that, that Jesus corrects, this hypocritical judgment, actually makes us worse at, at, at exercising discernment and the bright kind of judgment. Secondly, this kind of judgmentalism grasps for authority and it grasps for knowledge that God hasn't given us, attempting to climb into God's throne and to take his position. The judgmental person has himself convinced that he has a godlike knowledge of what's going on with other people. He assumes that he has the whole picture based on his very limited perspective. Now, he's not omniscient, and he might even say, oh, no, I don't know everything. I, I don't know everything. But he acts like he is. He puts things together in his mind, and he leaps to conclusions. But his vision is obscured by the log in his eye. And he forgets that what he sees is almost never the whole story. And what he doesn't see is just as relevant as the things that he does see. And, and also the fact that there are so many who look like on the outside, they have everything sorted out. You can put on a good show for like half an hour at a time or maybe an hour and a half. You can, put, you can look really put together for short periods of time and, uh, and, and your sin won't be revealed until the last day. It's possible to do that. The person who exercises this kind of of, of uh, hypocritical judgment would m look at somebody who looks like they have it all together and say, yeah, that's fine. They're all sorted out. And then find you in a moment of weakness and launch into you based on what they see, not knowing uh, the motive or the context. So, so this is why we're reminded repeatedly in the scriptures, of while there are judgment calls we must make, there are things we must discern. Ultimately, we aren't God. There are all kinds of things that we have to leave ultimately to his judgment and his final authority. James warns us in his epistle against speaking evil of one another and setting ourselves up as judges. He says, James does, there is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? You can't save, you can't destroy, so don't put yourself in the position of the one who does. We can't condemn anyone to hell, we can't see inside heads and hearts and souls. And so when we try and act like we can, as if that's our job, we're attempting to play a part that's impossible for us to play, that of God himself. And that's who Jesus calls hypocrites in this, in this section. We know it when we're doing it. It, it. We know when we're putting others beneath us, we do it consciously because it feels so good. It feels really good to be able to say, at least I'm not like that. I mean, I know I've got my problems, but I don't have those problems. To pray like the Pharisee, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. Yeah, I've got problems, sure, but they're not those sins. And we put ourselves in the position of this all-seeing, all-knowing judge to fire down criticisms and snarky comments about other people. We're putting ourselves in a position that Jesus didn't give us. Jesus specifically commanded his disciples not to be like that, not to take this pompous, overbearing, pontificating position. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus says to his disciples, he says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them 
And those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. See, not even Jesus himself took on this position, but he made himself of no reputation. He took the form of a bondservant, humbling himself, becoming obedient to the point of death. And he tells us to follow that example, not to exalt ourselves, but to humble ourselves. As Paul says in Philippians, in lowliness of mind, let each esteem each other better than himself. So do you know, you know who doesn't like uh, to esteem anyone higher than himself? Do you know who loves exalting himself over others? Do you know who desires the highest seat and grasps for glory and power and honor? Who, who doesn't mind ruining everyone else, even ruining the whole world if it takes it to get this feeling of superiority he thinks he deserves? Who acts that way? Well, the serpent, Satan, who we call the accuser, the accuser of the brethren. You know, when you act this way, you're acting like him. We're not talking about some slight little quirky behavior. I've, I've heard really super judgmental people referred to and, and dismissed, well, he's just super particular. Oh, he just, he just cares so much. No, it's satanic. He's acting like Satan. Judgmentalism and hypercritical uh, uh, judgmentalism and this, this hypocritical behavior is satanic. Thirdly, judgmentalism breaks down relationships in the body of Christ. It's very hard to get close to a hypercritical person. It's difficult to let your guard down even for a second. And you would never, ever, ever confess your sins. You would never admit any of your own struggles or weaknesses because you know that they're keeping a notebook. You you don't want to be bothered with close friends. I've got a, I've got a formula for you. If, you. if you don't like a lot of people really close and intimate in your life, here, here's the formula. Talk bad about everybody all the time. Carp and complain, and you will drive people away from you. Uh, now, initially, there will be some diseased souls. There will be some fellow gripers who will gravitate towards you, and you all can hang out like a bunch of buzzards for a while, but after a while, pretty soon, you can't tolerate each other. You tear each other apart. No one can long stand to be around a hypercritical person. You don't build people up. You don't edify them. You drag them down. And you feel, fill them with insecurity and paranoia. You're doing the opposite of pursuing the peace and purity of the church. So it breaks down relationships in the body of Christ. And then fourthly, Judgmentalism renders us incapable of loving real people. Jesus died for real sins, for real sinners, not theoretical, perfect people who deserve his love even more. But self-appointed judges, unlike Jesus, self-appointed judges have in their minds the ideal perfect person they could truly love. I could, I could really get along with that guy. I could really appreciate him and be friends if only he were more like the perfect guy I have in my head. Well, the truth is God hasn't given you perfect friends. He hasn't put you in a perfect family or put you in a perfect group of people. You have no perfect people in your life. He's not put you in a perfect church with a perfect pastor. 
He puts you here in this very imperfect church with this imperfect human sinner as a pastor. Uh, he he uh, didn't give you a perfect husband or wife. He didn't give you a sinlessly perfect child. He's given you the children he wants you to have. He wants you to have those. He gave them to you, and he calls you to love and serve the ones he gave you. You must not drive them crazy or exasperate them and push them away from Jesus and his church with your critical spirit. And instead, love them graciously, helping them remove the specks from their eyes uh, as one who has been cleansed, as one who has been forgiven, humbly, gently uh, uh, bearing each other's burdens. The remedy for judgmentalism is fairly straightforward and simple, and Jesus gives it to us. We must have an acute sense of our own fallenness. Our own sins must disgust us. We must come to grips with the fact that our sins stink to high heaven. My sin is disgusting and hateful to a holy God. And yet, he calls me his son. He speaks to me. He includes me in his people. He showers me with his mercies every day. He forgives me when I confess my sin. Nothing will put us in our place quite like coming to grips with the depths of our sins and the height of God's love for us. Only when you have humbly reckoned with this truth are you prepared to do surgery on the eyes of your brother or sister. And in that work, we go to Jesus together for his healing and restoration. Jesus doesn't have a log in his eye. He didn't have a speck. He doesn't have a speck of sin. Jesus can see clearly. He can discern completely. He alone judges with righteousness and true biblical justice and equity. He can remove all the logs and all the specks, and he helps us see. We don't do this work on our own. We don't do this in our own strength without him. We are insufficient in ourselves. So we, this is not something that we do casually or lazily, though we take this uh, so cavalierly. We just pop off with judgments all the time. This is serious work. We must actively train ourselves against unrighteous judgment because we will all face the righteous judge. We discipline our hearts and our minds instead of being omnicritical, constantly criticizing and judging and reviewing everything around us and everyone around us. Instead of being omnicritical, we learn how to be omni-grateful, to ask the question, why would the sovereign God of the universe put this in my life today? And how do I give, how do I give thanks for this? How do I give thanks for this person, for this situation, for this set of circumstances? How do I give thanks in every, every area of life? As Paul closed out the um, his letter to the Thessalonians, the first letter to the Thessalonians, he said, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Let's give thanks now. Father in heaven, we do indeed thank you for your word and for your spirit. We pray that you would make us acutely aware of our own sin that you would show us the beams, that you would show us the planks, make us humble so that we may bear each other's burdens in grace and patience and humility. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.